you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, with my garment and my cloak torn, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities we, our kings, and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favour has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant, and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering, to take possession of it, is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant, nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, 
you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Good morning, City on a Hill. Uh, that was me. Guy just leaned over to me and said, does it always have to be all about you? I can only apologize that you are hearing my voice a lot this morning. Uh, my name's Ben. Good to be with you here in Hoyt. It's great to have you gathering with us online. So good that so many people can join us uh, from lots of different places. Why don't we pray and ask God to help us as we open this tricky part of his word this morning. God Almighty, thank you that you are a God who speaks and, and you have preserved this part of your word for us to wrestle with. And Lord, it's difficult. It seems a long way from our own world today. And so we pray that you would help us make sense of it. Lord, you'd help us live in light of it. And you would encourage us to see your character shining through it. In your strong name we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm married to Suja. And together with our three kids, we live in the suburbs And one of the things, one of the good things about living in the suburbs is there's a little bit more space. And so a couple of years ago, with some of that space at our house, we decided to fill it with chickens. Chickens are a great pet. Better than bees, I want to wager, better than bees. They don't sting you and put you in hospital. They eat your scraps. They provide your eggs. And look how excited I am with our, one of our chickens. It's ridiculous how positive I was feeling. We, we built their coop. We gave them names. There was Penny and Pip. And then there was Foghorn and Leghorn. We would come down every morning excited to let them out of their coop. We'd count their eggs. And then we'd chase them back in at night and we looked like headless chickens doing it. It was a blast. We loved it. But, but a couple of months pass and it's late one summer's night. I'm doing the dishes. About 10 p.m. I suddenly remember that I haven't locked up the chooks. So I head out the back and I can see as I open the door, two eyes glowing back at me. It might have been pure evil, It might have been my torchlight reflecting back at me. Who can say? Uh, But what was clear was that we had a fox in our hen house. I run out towards the coop. He darts up and over the back fence. But his grisly business is finished. There are three chickens lying dead on the grass. Oh, come on, give me more than that. Oh, it was devastating. There were feathers everywhere. One chicken has disappeared in his mouth. As he jumped the fence, takeaway, I guess. And in that moment, don't laugh, this hurt. This really, really hurt. In that moment, this idyllic suburban dream is shredded. And we vowed that night that we would not let a single another chicken go to a fox on our watch. And we're now on chicken seven, eight, nine, and ten. So you can tell how well we're doing with that pledge. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, partly because it's cathartic for me to share my pain. But more than that, it's because this was a time in our life when we went from a, a high, and sure, it was ridiculous, but we were, we were optimistic about this plan and this project. We were excited. And then in a moment, in a mistake, actually, I hadn't locked them up. It came crashing down and our hope was crushed. And we've all had those experiences, haven't we? I know we've had them in the last couple of years where plans and hopes and dreams are derailed or at least disrupted 
plans for study, plans for work, plans for travel, plans for family and seeing family have been disrupted as COVID has taken hold of our lives. We know what it's like to have hopes and expectation and optimism come crashing down. And tapping into those feelings, even if they're difficult, is going to help us get to the right emotional pitch for our Bible passage today. Last week, Guy showed us through chapter 7 that the good hand of God was on Ezra. Everything is going well. The, the physical temple has been rebuilt, rebuilt. Ezra's coming back to Jerusalem to teach God's law so that God's law is at the center of the community as it is rebuilt. Uh, King Artaxerxes from Babylon sends him back with more of the exiles. They're, they're heavy laden with silver and gold, going back as an offering to God. They get to Jerusalem and they set up this massive worship fest. This is what we see in chapter 8. Uh, the people are there, the whole nation gathered. Ezra's teaching the law of God. Things are flying. It is the high point of the whole book. Hope and optimism are off the charts. And it all comes crashing down. In chapter 9, if you've got a Bible open, please do open it with me at, at Ezra chapter 9 so we can see the story as it unfolds. We're going to break the chapter into two parts, two points. First one is this. The rebuild requires faith, not faithlessness. Come with me to verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Ezra has been back teaching God's law in Israel for about four months, and then he gets this report from uh, the leaders, or some of the leaders of his people, that the people, uh, the priests, and the Levites have been fraternizing with those who were living in the land when the exiles returned from Babylon. And these people groups, they worship other gods and they do it in some pretty ugly ways. And, and in fact, it's more than just friendly chit chat that's been happening. Have a look with me at verse two. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. You can picture Ezra's devastation, can't we? These uh, symbols, the, the pulling out hair and the tearing of clothes in the ancient world, they're, they're a sign of grief. That something devastating has happened. Uh, Ezra is crushed. And why? Because of their faithlessness. That is the, the root problem here. We hear it a couple of times as we read through chapter 9. Faithlessness is their failure, and it's by the officials and the chief men, the leaders of the people, first and foremost. We've seen the whole way through this book that God has been generous to his people. He has provided them a place back in their land. He has protected them as they returned. He's given them the materials and the, and the wealth they need for this rebuild. And how do they repay him? With faithlessness. They know what God says in his law and they decide, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to do it my way. 
And that is the essence of sin. It's the the same sin we see on page three in the Bible when Adam and Eve rejected the, the words, the good instruction of their God, their maker. They decide they know better. They think they can do better. Faithlessness. And what is the symptom of that faithlessness? Well, the people of Israel, God's covenant people, have entered into relationships with the Canaanites, the Hittites, and and so on. They've taken foreign women as their wives. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this comes up a lot. There is a lot in the Old Testament that prohibits exactly this. Ezra knows it. Down in verse 14, he cries, 14, he, he cries out, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? He knows this is a, re- a rejection of God's word. He might have Deuteronomy 7, for example, in his mind where God warns his people about these nations. Let me read it. You shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For, key point four, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So first problem, they have disobeyed God's word. Second problem, Their identity as God's covenant people was at stake. These other nations, they weren't neutral. They practiced abominations. That means that their worship of their gods was toxic. They give themselves to sorcery and divination, handing themselves over to evil forces. They use sex to worship their fertility gods. They sacrifice their own children to their gods. God wanted to protect his people from serious spiritual and physical harm. Now, I want to be clear that the sin in question here is not marrying someone who is of a different race per se. God's concern is not with racial purity, but religious purity. So there are characters in the Old Testament who start outside of the people of God and and who become uh, worshippers of Yahweh. Ruth is a great example. She gets a book named after her. She is a Moabite woman who becomes an Israelite. She worships the God of Israel. She marries Boaz, who is an Israelite. And she is so significant that she's named in the family tree of Jesus. Israel is meant to be this light to the nations, pointing other people to God's goodness and generosity. No, his concern has never been for racial purity. We've got to be clear on this. There is no room for racism in the people of God. We are all welcome to worship the Lord. Now, the risk here is that God's people would be swallowed up by the world around them. They would lose their distinctiveness as worshippers of God and they'd lose any ability to point other people to him because we've seen they would drift to worshipping the other gods of these other peoples. 
Any reason why Ezra might feel that that's a risk for Israel? Yes, hundreds of years of their history. The whole reason they were exiled in the first place is because they worship other gods and they trust other kings. They got form. God wants to protect and preserve their identity as his covenant people. He wants their faith, not faithlessness. Now, what does this mean for you and I? We're living in the 21st century. This is a long way from our reality, isn't it? Am I guilty because I have married someone who is not of the same race as me? No, I don't think so. But in our context, God is still concerned that Christians remain faithful to him. And marriage is one of the ways that we can drift away from God into faithlessness. So there is wisdom in the New Testament around who Christians marry. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now this verse is not only about marriage, but it has to include marriage. This idea of us being yoked or joined together with someone else. It's really difficult when a Christian marries someone who's not a Christian because they're going in different directions. A Christian can't share the deepest and actually most eternal parts of their being with someone who's not a Christian. If I think of my own marriage with Suja, there's so much joy in sharing this deep sense of purpose that we have together, that we have for our whole lives. We're going to run hard at loving Jesus and sharing him with others. And now we've got kids, uh, we've got the privilege of raising them in the faith. There's so much joy for us in sharing that same purpose. And there's so much joy in knowing that when we get to heaven, we will spend eternity with Jesus. Not married, there's no marriage in heaven, but we'll know that more than any other single person in heaven, we had the greatest influence on the other person in our marriage to spur each other on to that great and glorious future that we will enjoy. There's such hope there. And that's not hope that that we can share if one of us wasn't a believer. No, of course, there are people here who've converted to Christianity because your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or wife has invited you to faith and we should celebrate your stories. That is great. But the truth is for every one of those, there are 10 stories of Christians who've just kind of faded away because it's just easier for life at home to put God in the background. If you're a Christian and you're weighing up whether to marry someone who is not a Christian, the wisdom from the New Testament is don't do it. And what if you are a Christian already and you're married to someone who's not a Christian? Well, the Bible says, keep going. Remember our series in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3, don't leave, don't give up. Your witness can win them to Jesus. There's a message, a purpose there for us if we're married to someone who's not a believer. I don't say either of those things lightly. They are hard to say. They're hard to hear, I'm sure, especially if this is personal for you. But God is building us up as his people and he is calling us to have faith. That his word is good for us. 
even in the most personal parts of our lives. Now, I realize that might be painful, and if you do want to pick up this in a conversation afterwards, I'd love to chat this week, anytime. Come and grab me after the service. I'm sure Guy and Steph and the staff here will be happy to do that as well. We'd love to hear your story and share God's word with you and walk through that journey together. This is a a brief word on marriage, but what about living by faith, not faithlessness, in all of our lives? How do we do that? Well, we get a little taster in verse four. Let's have a look together at verse four. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. Do you see what marks out the people gathering with Ezra? They tremble at the words of the God of Israel. And this is the essence of faith. They've listened to his word. They've they've digested it. They know it. They know the God who gives it to them. They know he's good. And they tremble. It's a picture of awe and deep respect, isn't it? How many of us tremble before God's word? How many of us are gripped by it? Do we respect it and love it so profoundly that we are building our lives on it? We're not building it as a shed out the back in the garden off the side of our lives. We're using it as the foundation of our lives. It sets the tone for everything else. Is that our relationship with God's word? I wonder sometimes if I am happy to embrace parts of it. I love the bits about Jesus' resurrection. I love the generosity of his spirit poured out on us. I love the bits about love. I love the hope held out in the new creation. There is a lot to love in God's word. But, but how do I feel? How do we feel when it gets under our skin like this? God has something to say about who I marry? God wants me to do what with my money? He wants me to give some away? God wants me to obey him all the time. He wants his word to shape and direct my life even more than I want. Really? There are parts of God's word that challenge who we are and how we live. And it's hard to trust God in those deeply personal parts of our lives, isn't it? The New York pastor Tim Keller says that there is a lie that's been around since the Garden of Eden, since the start of humanity's story. And it's a lie we're still believing today. The lie is this. If you obey God, you will never be happy. If I invest my life in following Jesus, I'm going to be left wanting more. Do you feel the the pull of that lie? I know I do. But it is a lie. It doesn't stand up to the truth we find in the Bible. At City Youth, shout out to our teenagers, City Youth on Friday night, we looked at the story of Jesus feeding the crowds of 4,000 and 5,000 people. And the crowds eat their fill. And then there are baskets of food left over. Why? It's an image of Jesus' abundant provision for his people. He always gives enough. He is for us. 
and he wants what's good for us, what's best for us. We have to trust that when he calls us to obey him, even in these most personal parts of our lives, it will go well for us. In the long run, it will be good for us. He is enough. The rebuild requires this kind of faith, not faithlessness. That's our first point in these first five verses. Are you still with me? It's heavy going. I know there's a heavy passage. The second point is this repentance is required in the rebuild. I had a friend at uni. He was a Christian friend, but he was chewed up by this persistent pull to using pornography. I think he knew it was wrong, but the desire there was just stronger. And so he gets to uni and he stumbles into this church where the Bible is taught week in, week out. The beauty and truth and relevance of Jesus is brought to bear on our lives every week. And in that church, under that Bible teaching, my mate realized that using porn was bang out of whack with God's purpose and plan for his life, for all of our lives. He knew uh, that it was not God's plan for his sexuality, and it was abuse, uh, an abuse of the women that he was watching. And the penny dropped more than once, really. And so one night, he went up to his room, and this was the time when the internet came to you via a cable that you plugged into your computer, old school, and he took some scissors and snipped the cable. No more internet. Not that he wasn't tempted or that he never gave in to that temptation, but he had taken action. He realized that his sin, his faithlessness was was him chasing after something that just wasn't going to satisfy, and he took action. And that is what repentance, friends, is. As the word of God grips our lives, we recognize him, we confess sin, and we, we turn away from it. We change in light of God's word. And that is what we have modeled for us in Ezra's prayer from verse 6 all the way through to chapter 10. And, and it is a model. This all happens very publicly. Ezra's at the temple. There are people gathered around with him. We're meant to see the importance of God's people practicing repentance. There are things for us to learn from this. Let's have a look. First thing to see is that repentance comes with this deep feeling of guilt and shame. That is what Ezra says. Have a look with me at verse 6. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. We know that feeling when we wrong someone, don't we? We we know that we don't want to see them. And if we do have to see them, we don't want to talk to them. And if we do have to talk to them, we don't want to look them in the eye. I felt that. That is the feeling of shame. And that is what Ezra is feeling because their guilt is so enormous. He pictures it piled up towards the heaven, this huge tar leaming, looming over him. He calls it iniquity. It's, it's sin. And yet here is the model for you and I. He doesn't let that guilt, that shame, stop him coming to God. He comes back. He doesn't hide. I know that when my faithlessness is exposed, I want to cut communication with God. I want to leave things for a few days till the, the feeling of guilt fades. And then I can come back to God as if nothing's happened and just carry on. Not Ezra. 
He jumps straight back in. He knows there is no sin too big to come to God with. He is our model when we feel that shame. Second thing worth noting here. Have a look with me at verse 7. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. Who's guilty? We are. It's corporate language the whole way through. Have a look at the prayer if your Bible is open. It's we and us and are the whole way through. Now, Ezra hasn't married someone contrary to God's law. He's not guilty of that. But he is the leader of this people. He is their priest. And so he stands between them and God. And he owns it. This is a a leader with integrity, isn't it? Something has gone badly wrong on his watch. But he doesn't shift the blame Onto someone else. He doesn't squirm his way out of it. He stands for his people, before his God, and he owns this guilt. Those are the kind of leaders that we want, aren't they? Leaders who take responsibility, who stand up for us, who lead by example. And as God builds us up, city on a hill, these are the kind of leaders that we need at every level of our life at church. Leaders who lead the way in heartfelt repentance. Leaders of our GCs and our kids ministry and our youth ministries. Leaders of our families. Leaders of an alpha course. If you're on staff, God's calling us to have this culture of saying sorry and repenting and changing, infusing us as a church. Third thing. I want us to see in this model of repentance is that saying sorry means change. The confession in chapter 9 is followed by action in chapter 10. And to be honest, it's pretty messy. The people recognize their marriages have been out of sync with God's law. And so the men pledge to separate from their wives. And then we have this organized mass divorce. Now, Remember, that is not what God is calling Christians to today, but that is the option they chose then. And they did it because they recognized how serious their faithlessness had been. The the risk was that they would drift away from God forever. And so they took action, painful action. And the truth is, sometimes with repentance, the actions can make our lives messy or not cleaner. We may lose a position as a volunteer. We may lose a job. We may lose relationships. Repentance may be messy in our lives, but look, this is where faith comes into play again because we might not be able to see the way ahead. We might not be able to see the resolution of our repentance, but we have faith that God can And in the long run, it is better for us that we follow his plan of repentance. Even if the resolution doesn't come until Jesus returns. 
We're called to trust that repentance is still better for our souls. In the long run, God requires it as he builds his people. That is you and I individually and together as a church. Ezra can't see the way ahead in his prayer. He finishes chapter 9 with questions. Do you see that? Verse 14, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any to escape? He hopes the answer is no, that God won't consume them, but he doesn't know. They take this action in chapter 10 and he hopes that God will be merciful, but he doesn't know for sure. He has his hands widespread. He's on his knees as he prays the end of verse 15 Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. But he's wrong. You see, we know now what Ezra didn't know then. We know that we can stand before God. He has this faint hope that God will be merciful. We have certainty. Not because we have more virtue than Ezra and the Israelites. No, it's because we have the cross of Jesus Christ. We can stand before God because we stand with Jesus. Sins forgiven, our souls cleansed changed people in the eyes of God because of Jesus. I'm going to invite the band up as we finish with this story of Jesus at a a dinner party at Simon's house. Simon's a, a popular Pharisee and there are some significant people in the room and during dinner they're reclining around the table as was their custom when a woman comes in and approaches Jesus the room falls silent when they recognize her as a a well-known woman in the city, well-known for her sin. She's got a lot wrong in her life. Well, you can hear a pin drop as she pours this expensive perfume on Jesus's feet. She's weeping and she takes her hair and wipes Jesus's feet clean. That is a a deeply shameful thing to do in that culture. And the murmurs go around the room. If Jesus really was a prophet, say the Pharisees, he would know what kind of woman this is touching him. But Jesus does know. And so he says, Simon, when I came in tonight, you didn't wash my feet with water, but she is washing my feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss when I came in, Simon, but she has not stopped kissing me. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she is anointing my feet with perfume. It was a picture of how deep her love and gratitude for Jesus is because she knows how much she has got wrong in her life. And so Jesus says these words to her and these are words he says to us. Your sins are forgiven. 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. How good is the gospel? How full of hope that we can know, no matter what we've done, no matter how tall that tower of guilt and shame that looms over us is, it is not bigger than the grace held out to us by Jesus Christ. And just like Jesus didn't send this woman away, if we come to him, no matter what we've done, he will not turn us away. We can come faithful and full of hope. We can stand before God and be forgiven and set free by the blood of Jesus Christ offered for us on that cross. He stood before my failure. He carried the cross for my shame. My sin weighed upon his shoulders, but now I can stand and all I am is his. We're going to finish a bit differently to normal. It seems right that we follow Ezra's example here and bring our lives before God and and spend some time reflecting on where we've been faithless before God. All of us have. Where we've chased after something that will not satisfy like Jesus does. Where we've taken his word and said, you know what? I know better, God. I'm going to leave us some time in quiet before we pray together a prayer of confession and in the silence talk to God if you're comfortable ask him to show us those moments this week this month even longer where we have been faithless we've fallen from his glory and then we'll pray love you to join me with this prayer on the screen, a prayer of confession that we'll say together out loud because none of us have graduated to sinless perfection. We say it together because it's a reminder that we have all fallen short of God's glory and we all need Jesus's forgiveness. Will you join me? Merciful God, our maker and our judge, we have sinned against you in thought word and deed and in what we have failed to do we have not loved you with our whole heart we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves we repent and are sorry for our sins father forgive us strengthen us to love and obey you in newness of life through jesus christ our lord amen Church, God's word shows us where we've fallen short, but he assures us of our forgiveness. Hear these words in 1 John chapter 4. In this is love. Not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the perfect offering for our sins. So will you stand with me now before our God and we will sing together with our hearts full of hope. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.